You're listening to By the Well, a lectionary-based podcast for preachers recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri people. Hi folks, I'm Kylie Crabb. And I'm Fran Barber. And today we're here to talk to you about the readings for the 20th week after Pentecost. We're going to be speaking about Joel uh chapter 2, verses 23 to 32, and the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verses 9 to 14. So if we launch in then, to Fran, to thinking about Joel, uh, this is a, a one-off little um, moment where we get to hear about Joel in the lectionary. Uh, we don't have stuff before or after, just this one passage. Uh, what would you want to share with us about the book of Joel as we think about this? Well, it's um, a set of prophetic poems and I think it's considered generally post-exilic but there is some – it's not directly clear because he doesn't yeah. mention um, – he doesn't mention kings, for yeah. example. Yeah, but so Jerusalem can't be kind of pinpointed. No, no. no. Um, I find it interesting because it's the text Joel uses other Hebrew scriptures abundantly and quotes them and is wrestling clearly wrestling with them, not necessarily so much in this passage before us today, but elsewhere. And so I find that very interesting just as, as a preacher or as, as a faithful person, thinking that this, this whole iterative process of reading and trying to understand and interpret and using other people's understandings and looking at the world and the text and trying to – is what Joel's doing here, so I kind of like that um, – the other thing to say too, I think, is that he doesn't um, belabor Israel's sin in his text. He doesn't really mention it at all, um, which yeah is distinct, I guess. So we've come straight into um, a great word of hope in chapter two. And chapter one has been has focused on the day of the Lord in the past, in Israel's past, and in particular a swarm of locusts, and natural, essentially natural disaster mm. has befallen them and how horrendous it was and that um, God um, saved them from this. Um, and then in Chapter 2, there's we, what well, we have here, a kind of a more eschatological uh, vision of the day of the Lord of the yeah. future. Yeah. And, um, you know that 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 vision is interpreting their present yep. and vice versa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The people's present as well. I think it's really interesting that this passage. Well, the, well, in fact, the whole book of Joel has a kind of. Um, so, in older scholarship that people may have read at some point, there was kind of quite a tradition. I mean, we see this in a lot of our, a lot of older scholarship on biblical texts. A bit of a tradition of wanting to separate out layers of the text, and mm. one of the grounding assumptions that people would make would be that, um, you know, oh, eschatological kind of stuff. You know, expectation about the future, about what God will do at the end, all must have been added in later and an earlier form of the text would have not had that. But actually there's um, more recent scholarship is very keen to point out how integrated this is, this kind of experience that's described in the kind of political present time um, of the of the writer, uh, which itself is kind of interpreting, used then read through this lens, of, like you're saying, Fran, of interpreting um, uh, earlier Hebrew Bible texts. Um is is all kind of part of the mix of stuff that that is part of the future hope as well. It's all kind of integrated. So it's, I mean, beautiful poetic language here and abundance and um, rejoicing. Uh, I suppose I'd just say for our little context here in Australia, and we know, well, 
we know you're not all in Australia, but we've got a lot of rain in parts of Australia yeah. at the moment that is quite devastating for communities. So it's just it's interesting. I mean, you know, just to point out um, that rain is for fertility in the scriptures and for growth and for mm. renewal, but people are currently labouring under way too much of it. Yeah. And, and in fact, there's a whole lot of stuff, isn't there, in there about how the kind of natural world is interpreted differently in different geographical spaces mm. and, um, and just being mindful of how we, how we use that stuff, really. Um, I think one of the things that's interesting and not that we would, um, want to just read uh, Hebrew Bible texts through the lens of the New Testament, of course, not at all. Um, th- but, but of course, b- these texts have an afterlife mm. from their original kind of setting and they get taken up in different contexts. In fact, the prophecy in Joel here uh, is is um, taken up in various parts of, of uh, later Judaism. Um, and, of course, it will be familiar as you're reading it through Um from Peter's speech at Pentecost in Acts two as well, um, that that this is the the prophecy that gets taken up in that context. So we might be mindful of that on the one hand, and also kind of set it aside as we think about what it's doing here in Joel in this mm. in this context as well. But I mean, it's kind of in a way, it's part of Fran what you're talking about with the um, this kind of tradition of texts interpreted in new contexts. That we have that as a tradition throughout the Hebrew Bible. That there are passages in the Hebrew Bible which later texts also within the canon um, interpret for new contexts and we get it Mm. as it goes on in in other traditions in Judaism, in the New Testament, all these different places. Um, Is there something you want to say, like what would we want to pull out to notice about the content of that future prophecy? Well, I suppose we'd notice that the very um, concrete... um, Concrete way in which it's it, it happens so that you have enough to eat. You are mm. overflowing. I mean, this it, it's not all airy fairy. This is very much about living in the world fruitfully now, mm. um, and that you will be protected, um, and that God is faithfully looking over you, come what may, mm. and not just you, but all all flesh. Yeah, I think that's a that's a beautiful bit, right? When we get to verse twenty eight, um, and after all of this stuff, it says, um, "I will pour out my spirit on all flesh," uh, and we get this kind of grand vision um, about you know your sons and daughters. Does it specifies both sons and daughters? You know, sometimes mm, in our yeah. NRSV and slaves and it's, slaves, it's, it's slaves. got all these different groups. Sometimes our NRSV helps us to make things uh, inclusive language that are not like that in the original text but this is it says sons and daughters shall prophesy mm. your old men shall dream dreams our young and your young men shall see visions um you know like it's it's got this um uh this this sense of of extravagance um and of divine pouring out of of all that's needed to kind of make make sense of things in this um, in the new kind of coming world, and we get this. You know, there's there's some kind of tricky language in there. We might point out um, stuff about um, portents, so like signs. Mm, mm. Um, 
things in the kind of natural or kind of supernatural world that might be interpreted as divine signs is what that portents would be meaning. Um, Blood and fire and columns of smoke, um, the the sun turning to darkness, the moon to blood. So this is this is not stuff that is just like part of the regular um, phenomenon. Uh, Well, it's opposite creation. It's it's opposite how creation occurred according to Genesis one. Yeah, so there's a kind reversal. of undo, there's a reversal of some of that stuff. Yep, it could also be signs of dis, you know anticipated destruction and and so on. That it's um, but but all of it is building to be an indication of what what you'll see um, in anticipation of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Um, yeah, so we see all of that coming together. I did want to. Um Say one thing about the psalm, Psalm 65. We're not doing a big conversation on that this week, but um, I was very, really struck by um, how it echoes this reading from Joel about the amazing actions of God who does awesome deeds, who visits the earth, who provides, who crowns, who does this, just heaps of verbs in that um, Mm. psalm, and also an echoing of the all flesh. Mm. Uh, Just so, just to flag with people that, it's good to use liturgically this week because if you're preaching on Joel particularly. Mm. Yep. And the second thing I wanted to point out or just think about was just the repetition, you see, and repetition's always a hint that something's <laughs> very important, that my people shall never again be put to shame. Mm. And that's repeated, you know, in three lines. And I don't know, when we're preaching, we something steps um, – Stands out for us sometimes, and I was just interested in thinking about what shame is, and that whole process where we are put in that position or have find ourselves there, and how God responds mm. to um, to our shame. Yeah, so I, there is something too in this passage that I think goes with that as well. I think that's really good reflection. Um, that is something about um, actually the the kind of staunch presence of God that that the that the writer is arguing for through this whole section that God is that God is there in this and um, I I notice um, like one of the things I wanted to mention is uh, is potentially a verse that might sort of seem problematic or trip us up mm. um, to talk about um, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. I mean, interestingly, that's a verse that um, Paul also cites in Romans 10. Um, but, but just, you know, like that it can be easy for us to read that um, as though there's there's an implicit rev, um, flip side to that. Mm. The people who don't call on the name of the Lord will not be saved or, you know, how that how Well, there's that an in and an out still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But but in the context, I mean, the text doesn't say that, right? It doesn't give us the reverse of it. And But what it does say, just a few verses earlier, is about that the Lord will pour out, in fact, it's in first person, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And so... I, I think the context here is not imagining an outsider group that is mm. thereby excluded, mm. but a, but a claim for hope uh, in the face of all all sorts of te- um, terrible and difficult things that that um, that calling call out for God. God will be there. God will hear you, um, and and there will be a, a response. Um, of course, it's all it's framed in this eschatological way. It's not like set up as being um, a kind of simplistic um, prayer for particular 
things like a kind mm. of wish list sort of you know Santa Claus list um it's it's something much more complex than that but also um depth I think you know um and then it, it you know goes on to talk about among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls so there's you know there is this kind of um relationship in in there that's very very deep about like you know. yeah and it's it's I mean seems to me the text is is wanting to avoid those simplicities yes in a way you know but, but that happens this way but it also happens this way and it happens this way and you know not this is the way it's going to happen. Yeah. So there's um, genuine good news at God's um, faithfulness to, to all people. That's right. Zion's mentioned bookends this reading. So I suppose I would and would just also say that um, this vision spills from the temple in a way but is for the whole, yeah. the whole world and um, which all flesh obviously – says but the next chapter too particularly it's about a renewal of creation and sort of like a new eden that goes on after this passage fantastic do we i i think at this stage we might need to switch our attention and we're going to move now to talking about the passage from luke and that is luke 18 verses 9 to 14 The parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Short, but says so much. <laughs> Short, not that sweet. No. <laughs> no, not that sweet. You know, I was going to say that. Oh, I, love, I love this parable. It's one of, one yeah, of my favourites, actually, although people might engage with it in a whole range of different ways. But, that, of course, that is part of the... It's what a parable is. part of the gift of a parable. But, I mean, one of the things that I would draw attention to is that um, I, th- I think... And it doesn't mean that how we interpret it needs to overplay some of this, but I I think that some of the stories uh, in Luke's gospel, especially, but in a variety of places, um, are actually funny. And mm. I think this one is has elements of humour. There's like a lot of traditions of comedy in the ancient world, and I think this is part of them. And I think you just have to kind of read through it and and hear the voice of the Pharisee, you know, this self-justifying character here, say, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, <laughs> to kind of notice that there is a thing in here that's funny, mm. which doesn't mean that, I mean, the the humour can still be trying to make a really barbed point about how we I'm act. I'm sure right? it is, yeah. yeah. But, um, you know, that's kind of, oh, you know, it can be so, I can think of so many contexts where just like, you know, noticing that we are doing this, this thank you God that I'm not like other people um, is, is quite the invitation to reflection. Well, I think of, often we don't know that we're doing it. Yes, Subconscious, yeah, in a way of thinking, yeah, yeah. So, so it brings. I think also this um, this parable brings out lots of things that are important Lucan themes. Um, you know, insiders and outsiders um, come up a lot, uh, and and this kind of sense of of you know like this this question about being exalted, exalting yourself, and being humbled or humbled and. Um, humbling themselves, being exalted, this reversal that we get in in Luke's um, in Luke's text. So, Fran, I'm wondering what you reckon about you know how are we going to which character stands out to you? What where do you think the challenge is in that character? Um, well, I first start by saying I don't want a sermon on humility. There's a lot yes. more going on here. Thank yes. you, folks. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And it feels like, and so, yeah, I agree with you. They're very stark. There's no subtlety here and, and you know, it is potentially funny for that reason. Um, but we also have, in a way, with the Pharisee and with Jesus, two ways of interpreting the world and engaging with it. And one might say the Pharisee is, represents a sort of a moralistic way of going, so ticking off all the boxes and, and in fact, as the text said, trusting in himself, I'll call himself, mm. such that God isn't actually necessary. Mm. And the Pharisees are furious with Jesus. He perplexes them generally because he appears to be someone quite pious. Well, he's learned and, you know, he teaches and so on, but actually does not behave in the way that they believe is the right course of things. Um, and there's a certain freedom with which he acts um, that is contrasted with their anxiety, their own anxiety, the, the Pharisees' own anxiety here. So, um, and again, you know, with parables, never think that your you know, Ben Myers' 10 rules spring to mind again. Um, I think there's elements of real truth in the fact that we, we are – in this story, we are the Pharisee a lot. Mm. We want to justify ourselves. We want to make sure we're doing all the right things and we'll be seen by God for those things. Um, and the, the gospel and, – and we are also uh, Zacchaeus sometimes to our own detriment in maligning ourselves and having a really um, – um, well, what what's the word, Kylie? A extremely <laughs> negative view of ourselves that yeah. is not, you know. There's a truth in that we're all forgiven sinners. You yeah. know that is a fun. Yeah, yeah. That is one of the gifts of Christianity. Actually, is that that recognition that we are all forgiven sinners yeah. doesn't mean necessarily we flagellate ourselves and beat our chests. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's, not necessarily the best form of prayer. Yeah. So, so Fran, you're giving us a good uh, sense of that the the literary context of where this is in Luke, because we're going to get to Zacchaeus uh, in, like, you know, it's the start of the next chapter mm, in Luke. So mm. there's there's this connection there mm. with with the tax collector there and the tax collector mm. in our parable mm. here. And I totally um, I totally agree with what you're saying about the um, the. You know, like we get in this parable, we get this model of self-flagellation in a mm. way. If that's how, if you, there would be a way of reading this text that that sort of glories in the kind of self-hatred that might mm. come from a mm. particular way of engaging with that prayer, be merciful to me, a sinner. But there's a there's also another like healthier way of thinking mm. about it. So so how do we engage with with this in a in a healthy, helpful way? And um, one of the things that came to mind for me as I was thinking about it, because I was thinking, oh, actually, there's there's something there's something so important about being able to recognize our sin and our brokenness, um, and also to read the moment in especially you know as we're preaching this stuff in congregations, like who needs to what is it that people need to hear today, and how do we make sure that people hear the thing that they need to hear within this um, 
you know, that's, that's not, you know, anyway, that's, so one of the things that came to mind to me is this fantastic book by Serene Jones, who's a, she's actually a feminist theologian. Uh, Her book's called um, Feminist Theory and Christian Theology, Cartographies of Grace. Love, wow. love the subtitle, oh, right? That's so a good. great subtitle. I wonder uh, if that took a long time. Yeah, yeah, that's right. How she came up with that. <laughs> we should write and ask her. Um, but, but one of the things that she, she's actually, she's a, a scholar really of um, reformers. She wrote her doctorate on Calvin. Um, but one of the things that she notices is that, you know, if you think about this traditional um, division between, say, justification, our need to be um, forgiven sin, um, and uh, sanctification, the possibility of becoming whole. She says, well, kind of the, the kind of real focus that you get in the reformers on justification makes some sense if you're a Calvin or a Luther or someone with a lot of power who, who might be needing to rethink, you know, like what have I been doing and mm. where where is my sin mm. and become conscious of that. But most people come to life experience or in light of their life experience come to things in a much more broken way and it's actually the truly and and you know as we preach on this stuff we might be identifying with the calvin and luthers and that might be entirely appropriate but there'll be people in our congregations who might be coming to things much more from the sense of everything is broken totally this awareness of their own fallibility and thinking this this idea this possibility of being move to wholeness of being of sanctification is extraordinary and that's the first step and of course in that process you then become aware over time of you know the sin and the need for justification and stuff but 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 really thinking about where is the right starting point in how we talk about the possibility of um being made new in light of what god has done in christ i think it's a, a powerful thing yeah, and I think your words about um, having a nuanced approach depending on the context and the community you're speaking with is incredibly important. Mm. Um, I would also say one thing, which is a, a further kind of practical thing um, that that probably most listeners are already aware of, but to be super careful about how we use the language of Pharisees when mm. we're talking about this mm. stuff in congregations and and thinking about how other people might hear that and thinking, um, you know, like to be clear that this is not, we're not talking about a historical group of uh, Jewish people of the first century. I mean, there definitely was a historical group of Pharisees in the first mm. century, but their portrayal in the New Testament Gospels is is as a kind of, you know, it's a literary type. Caricature. Pro- yeah, it's a caricature. And actually, if you're looking for a really handy um, uh, recent resource on thinking about um, how to deal with the portraits of the Pharisees um, and not um, contribute to kind of anti-Jewish rhetoric and all this kind of stuff, that... Um, uh, we can put a link in the show notes, but there's a um, uh, the Enoch Seminar, which is an international group of scholars working in Second Temple Judaism, did a, um, a kind of online forum around the time of um, Easter, I think, um, this year in uh, 2022, looking at those questions about the responsible interpretation of the Pharisees. So that could be helpful too. Yeah, yeah, no, that's an important word. So what is the... I mean, the standout good news here, um, I think it's that we need to avoid the sort of moralism that can trap us into thinking um, there's a right way of being a Christian or there's a right way of responding to God. Mm. Um, And I say that from, I mean, I, I say that 
um, and that would be an interpretation um, that would set aside what the tax collector's doing particularly, but more in response to what the Pharisees are doing. I don't know what... I think that's right. And and I think there's something interesting actually that, I mean, I guess the, the story is so open textured in a way that it that I think you can find a challenge and good news depending on where you're coming yeah. from and that we that 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 is a good thing um because i think the other thing about the pharisee um is that in fact the kind of contempt he's showing for his fellow human human um is itself part of the kind of the sin that he that he is showing the, you know that yeah yeah and i was i was because you saw humor and you know convincingly when i first read this at the moment i you know, these days I was thinking contempt just based on a um, article by a couple of local scholars here in Melbourne and broadcasters have written an essay on that the fact that contempt is the nature of the public debate everywhere now and it's more than anger, which, you know, you can have quite right anger and you can have contempt that's quite right too, they say, but that this is what contempt does that anger doesn't is it dehumanises your, your arguing partner. And so I had all that in my head. So, yeah, it was contempt that I really – that came through for me here. Just a couple of phrases. Um, I'm interested just that the, the Pharisee was standing by himself. We're told, you know, where these players are standing. Yeah. He's by himself and the tax collector is far off. So there's a real – I don't know. There's a quite dislocation and disunity and fragmentation mm. Um in the way they're portrayed, as well as in, um, well, this fragmentation is what goes on in us that God is, that Jesus here is trying to overlay a whole new freedom onto. Does that make sense? Yes, it makes total sense. I think that's right. It's interesting to think about it in those kind of spatial terms Mm. and imagine the story as Jesus is telling it and sort of acting itself out. Yeah. And, you know, did did uh, the tax collector go closer to Jesus, mm. you know, once Jesus had addressed him and spoken to him um, in his yeah, yeah. in his grief and his distress? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it would be an interesting exercise to imagine how in the in the world of the parable um, these characters intersect with with Jesus, you know, if these mm. these were, yeah. Yeah, and of course, the whole story is is prompted by what Jesus has noticed uh, about the way the the people who are actually gathered around are are behaving. So it is prompted by noticing the way that the righteous regard are regarding others with contempt. And people like tax collectors. We didn't say this in the beginning, but obviously a maligned profession at the time because they were instruments of the oppressors, Rome, and on top of that, they also would steal. Would go beyond. The money they were supposed to, they would take for taxes and they would accept bribes and so on. So that's just a bit of late detail about the exclusion that's going on here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's not just like there would be reasons why the the person listening to this parable read out would have had a, a picture of a tax collector as not a good person, which we maybe mm. lose because we've um, – read those things so often that uh, we already know who the good guy is meant to be. Well, it would be interesting (laughs) what we would say instead if we wrote it now. And we'll leave that with you. Thanks for listening. Thanks, everyone. By the Well is brought to you by Pilgrim Theological College and the Uniting Church in Australia. It's produced by Adrian Jackson. 
Thanks for listening.